It's Picture Lock on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. Today, I'm joined by Dean Rogers of The Rogers Review to discuss our top 10 films of 2018. As you can imagine, if you get two film critics in the room to talk best of, it can take a while. So this podcast episode is a little bit longer than the usual, but it's definitely a good listen. The DC Black Film Festival will be held August 15th through 17th this year at the Miracle Theater. Be sure to mark your calendars. Filmmakers interested in submitting will open up call for entries February 1st. If you're interested in serving as a volunteer screener, visit dcbff.org and click on the Get Involved tab at the top of the site. Catch us on social media to join the conversation as to which anniversary film we should celebrate this year. Also, I'm happy to say that you can catch me bi-weekly on WJLA's Let's Talk Live in the D.C. area, so be sure to tune in on Fridays every other Friday, but I'll have the link to my reviews under the appearance section at PictureLockShow.com. For now, let's get into the top 10 of 2018. Hey everyone, this is Emma Loggins, Editor-in-Chief at FanBolt.com, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I am your host, Kevin Sampson, and today I'm really excited, guys. I'm going to give the top 10 films of 2018, in my opinion, and also the opinion of friend of the show, Dean on the scene, aka Bees Rogers. Dean, what's happening, man? You are never going to let me live down Bees, aren't you? Oh, my God. Never, man. And, and and the thing about it is, at this point, like, it's just one of those things that in our relationship... Mm-hmm. When I when I say bees, it's it's all love. It's all love. That thing was so funny to me. Like I could go watch that on YouTube right now and crack up. It's it's, it's all love. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. But definitely, it's been a great year, especially for movies. So there's not a great hitters, home runs, and then there's ones that were foul ones that I don't want to get into today. You know, but it's been. A- <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I, for some reason to me, I, I feel like 2018 wasn't one of those years where it's like, wow, there were just so many like outstanding films. But I think that there were a lot of good to two maybe great films. And uh, and so. So, yeah, it's a little interesting. And I don't know, maybe maybe I'm thinking that every year, but uh, I'm looking forward to cracking into this list with you. Absolutely, and that's the hardest part about us being film critics. It's like every year it's always challenging to pick out those 10 that mean so much to us, but it always changes every single day as we get closer to the end of year, you know? Yeah, most definitely. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started, folks. Now, the way that we're going to do this, we're going to go ahead and kind of rapid fire list off our uh, 10 down to 6, and then Dean and I will go through, you know, 5 up to 1, and we'll go a little bit more in detail on our top 5. But because I don't want this show to be a, you know, 2-hour show, I'm going to go ahead, make sure we go ahead and we will knock this out. So, Dean, I'm going to start out at number 10. My number 10 uh, movie for this year is Hereditary. 
Uh, and this okay. was directed by and uh, written by Ari Aster. And this film is one in which uh, it's a psychological, I think, I feel like horror thriller um, that just really stuck with me. I mean, that sound will be in my head, you know, into next year. And so a lot of the ones on my list are films that like resonated with me in some kind of way or like after I saw it, it stuck with me because there's a lot of films that, you know, I saw it and I've forgotten about it, but Hereditary was definitely one. Toni Collette's uh, performance is just outstanding. I won't be surprised if she takes home a bunch of awards. Uh, so my number 10 is Hereditary. All right. Well, my number 10 is the most recent film. It's Spider-Man Into Spider-Verse. I mean, it comes out to what Spider-Man needs to, you know. It's a stunning pictural style of this genre-bending film, artfully weaving the best of comic book visuals with modern CGI to create an effect unlike any I've ever seen before. It's more than a comic jumping off the page. It's better than I can imagine, yet it's a charming new or origin story that will stick with you. It's innocence, it's confusion, it's termination you can drop whatever you're doing and grab a person dive in because if you're a comic book fan like most of us are it's an absolute must be and you gotta go see it you know? <laughs> most definitely you're gonna hear uh my thoughts on that later down the line my number nine uh, a quiet place uh this is directed and starring john krasinski you know, everybody's been talking about Bird Box over, you know, the holiday season, holiday break. And I think Netflix dropped that at just the right time because everyone's at home, wants to be entertained. But A Quiet Place is the much better version of that film. It's in a post-apocalyptic world. A family is forced to be in silence that they're hiding from these monsters that have ultra sensitive hearing. And really it becomes a character study about a family and how they unite and the things that causes them to be a little divided. And I just thought it was greatly executed. It wasn't perfect, it had its flaws, but it was definitely one that would stick with you. So my number nine, A Quiet Place. Excellent, that's a good, excellent choice. Number nine really speaks to me, especially growing up, and I watched the show, and then once I saw the documentary, it really touches me in heartstrings, and that's Won't You Be My Neighbor. It is very, extremely difficult to explain the importance of Mr. Rogers, the late, great Fred Rogers, without having experienced one of his many numerous episodes over the years. The icon of television that explained to children through a particular language absolutely everything that generated curiosity is and will be unmatched. If any justification had to invent a time machine, is to go to that strange moment in our childhood, which I need an answer, and sure, Mr. Rogers can give it to us. <laughs> um, possible to go to that time and understand the relevance of his figure. The documentary will solve the enigma in the most natural way possible and is counting an honest version of who was the man who became a legend for us for the simple reason of telling us how we needed someone to speak to us. In fact, the documentary shows us the hero he is. It shows us a reality without filters of how their methods were and how they were wide, how wide they were. Sometimes the film seems so honest that it can lead to a suspicion of manipulation of the facts, but luckily the landing is a beautiful factor for the third act of the documentary. One that shows the closing of the circle, the inevitable moment of Miss, Mr. Rogers 
must hang his sweater to keep going. I mean, there would be an extraordinary explanation of how we do not need fantastic powers to be able to help others. Now, tell me if our concurrent society that we do not need a Fred Rogers. Something tells me no, everyone's going to say, no, we do need him to this day. And this documentary shows us how much we needed him then and how much we still need him right now. Yeah, that's a, a great choice. Uh, definitely, Mr. Rogers, that is your childhood, you know, like what, growing up PBS. Uh, so it's a great choice. All right, man. So how about I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to let you go ahead. Hit up the your number eight. All right, well, number eight for me, we're going up to outer space, my favorite place, and that is First Man. We're talking about Damien Lachelle at the helm. He explores the emotional sacrifices artists must make for the work. His latest, a flame kiss, Neil Armstrong biopic starring the wonderful, talented Ryan Gosling as the mythical, the legend, Moonwalker. And it's certainly a film about emotional repression and simmering male anger, but this time the canvas is much huge, especially since the movie switches to IMAX mode when Armstrong and his crew hits the glorious, the mystery of the moon. His cold approach of examining individuals with an unhealthy work-life balance has often felt overwrought to me, but here, with Gosling stoically burying his feelings in pursuit of celestial glory, he launched himself into a different artistic stratosphere and atmosphere at the same time. The flight sequences were the most fascinating and amazing. It felt like you were in space. And the domestic scenes were no less tense, rejecting the science the hell out of it, Trump, you know, the triumph of the Martian. This is a movie that doesn't attempt to explain the terror, the confusion, and the loneliness of space travel. Instead, it places the viewer at the heart of it, especially the, the last act that you were there on the moon. I mean, man, I had tears seeing that. It felt like I was there with Armstrong and I was seeing and feeling what any moonwalker, any Apollo astronaut, any man who's 12 who walked on the moon felt when they stepped on the moon. It was breathtaking to say the least. Yeah, I definitely think that Damien Chazelle's uh, The First Man or First Man was uh, amazing. It didn't quite make my list, but it definitely was up there. And again, it's one of those ones that it could easily be switched out into your top 10. I feel like uh, the way that he actually shot the film, you feel as though you are actually walking in their shoes. And, uh, you know, that that moment on the moon uh, in which, you know, it might have been a little bit of Hollywood. I'm not sure if that actually happened, but him dropping that uh, bracelet was, oh, man, that just that crushed me. So that's a definitely a good choice. Um, my number eight is uh, from Boots Riley. Sorry to bother you. Now, again, I think this is one of those films that you have a huge reaction to. People either like it or they hate it. Uh, and I, I felt like I, this thing just really resonated with me, starring Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, and uh, it actually has a, a well-rounded, great cast. Um, but the way that Boots was able to speak about uh, the rat race, um, present-day workforce, I think he does it in such a, a unique way. He definitely has control of the camera, his subjects. And so, sorry to bother you. It definitely takes, uh, as I've said before, a little left turn at one point. 
Um, however, I think the overall message was one that really stuck with me. And, you know, I've seen it months ago, but uh, it's still with me today. And I, I was really impressed by uh, first time director Boots Riley. So that was my number eight. Wow. That's a pretty good choice. Number seven for me, and I have to piggyback on you. It's sorry to bother you. It's nice. An amazing film, especially for a first-time director, Boots Riley. I had a chance to interview him many moons ago, and he talked about the process of selecting the cast and the crew. And you're right. It is amazing how he created this alternate universe and to have the Keith Stanfield, who's from Get Out to play the lead, and Tessa Thompson, and Army Hander, Hammer, such an amazing cast. It was never a dull moment of me. I mean, I was weirded out when the first time I saw it, but once I saw it a couple more times, I really enjoyed the film. And I really hope to see more of Boots Riley's work in the near future. He definitely knocked it out of the park the first time, and I'm glad that he made this film. Yeah, most definitely. All right, so my number seven, I, I have to say, I saw this in Middleburg, and I absolutely hated it. I wanted to walk out. Um, Is but that right? I, I, yeah, I, I did. I wanted to walk out. Uh, that's Yorgos Lanthimos's The Favorite. Now, this is one that everybody is talking about, and it's probably going to win a lot of awards. Now, in terms of direction, in terms of set production, uh, all of those things, uh, I think that this is a phenomenal film. It is definitely, you cannot say that it doesn't look like 18th century England, um, and I can understand why it's getting so much Buzz, uh, you know, Olivia Coleman, Rachel Weisz, uh, Emma Thompson, or I'm sorry, Emma Stone, they all, yeah, they all did just a, a great job in terms of their acting. However, you know, Lanthimos is one of those guys that you either enjoy his uh, script writing, his style of storytelling, or you don't. And for me, I did not enjoy it. However, I did understand cinematically uh, what was going on and I have to say again going on the the uh, theme of films that stuck with me even though I hated it there's so much that I can remember from it because it was just that unique and different so uh, you know I didn't really personally enjoy it I probably will give it another look uh, down the line um, however again it was so unique that it really did stuck with me and, and stick with me. And so it definitely made my uh, top 10. It's my number seven, the favorite. Excellent. So do you want me to take over for uh, number six? Yeah, go ahead and hit up six. All right, number six, um, another film which I really enjoyed, Black Klansman. And it's, I have to admit, Spike Lee's best joint film as what you call it, we all call it, in years. That addition to the superb craftsmanship and filmmaking, it effortlessly drifting between a buddy cop film and a thriller formula. And poetic essay and black exploitation wish fulfillment. It also challenges the very role of historical revisionism in cinema. It offers a compelling counterpoint to a century-long narrative of hate that has festered its way back into the mainstream and unfortunately in the White House. Spike created a rebuttal to an on-screen narrative of hate that once emboldened the real Ku Klux Klan in favor of his cinematic alchemy that channels inclusion and unity among desperate elements. 
This not only pertains to cops and black activists at the core of the movie, but it also the movie's clarion call to form a united front against the regressive hate, which Black Klansman traces all the way back to the backroom initiations from the 1970s to the modern-day tragedy that we had with Charlottesville just last year. This film is engrossing and beautifully active with melting pot of styles, aesthetics, and ideals. In all in all, the effort of creating a more perfect narrative union where lies Lee fires back against previous Hollywood lightning revisionism with his own thunderbolts. And the cast was amazing, especially we got John David Washington playing the real-life Ron Stallsworth. And Adam Driver, his buddy, who had to play a white version of the Ron Stallworth. And then Topper Grace as David Duke. That, oh my goodness, I will never look at Topper Grace again to <laughs> see that. But Spike Lee handed to him definitely a wonderful movie this year. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, it didn't make my list, but again, it's one of those ones that could easily, I, I need to revisit it, but it could easily go back into, you know, the top 10. Um, you know, Tim Gordon and I, we were talking about this film and just how it was, it's a little bit over the top. And I think that's the only reason that for me personally, I didn't put it in my top 10, but I definitely think that the impact is felt. And so that's a great choice. My number six is going to Steve McQueen's Widows. Um, I think that this was an excellent crime drama thriller, a heist yeah. film that in any other hands would have uh, been a flop, but McQueen definitely knows how to direct his actresses, actors, has a great ensemble cast. Um, what he did with his camera, just, you know, just making this world come to life uh, was amazing. And on top of that, the editing, the, the opening sequence, the cross-cutting between, you know, some uh, kind of quiet storytelling and then loud, uh, you know, the heist that, that's actually uh, unfolding in front of your eyes. I mean, it was just uh, an invigorating film. I enjoyed it so much when I saw it at Middleburg. I've seen it plenty of times since. So my number six is Widows. I have to agree with you, Kevin. This was one of those films that is definitely one of my top honorable mentions. It almost made the cut for me. I mean, as I said, this year was, like other years, pretty difficult. But I definitely agree with you. Seeing this at Middleburg and other places, Widows is a definitely top ten film by any chance. I just wish it made my top ten because it was so good. And plus, with Viola Davis, you can never go wrong with Viola Davis, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and I mean, honestly, that whole cast, uh, you know, I, I think about it, it, even like the, the smaller parts uh, you know, th that was where the acting, because a lot of times I think in some films you have a higher, uh, a heavy hitter like Viola Davis or Liam Neeson, but then when you bring in Michelle Rodriguez and uh, Elizabeth Debicki, I think just did a, an amazing job, but Brian Tyree Henry, you know, like it, the whole ensemble uh, came to work. So that is, um, folks, that is our top you know, 10 down to six. So we're about to get into our top five. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Picture Lock. I am your host, Kevin Sampson. Uh, and for the radio listeners, we are going to start the show right now. However, I definitely think you should subscribe to the podcast and iTunes or wherever you catch your podcast. I am joined today with my man, Dean on the scene, Rogers. Dean, what's going on? Doing great. Having a great time, especially 
I'm reviewing films with you once again, so it's always a pleasure. We always have a good time, even though you haven't let me forget about bees, but <laughs> I heard, but it's all in fine, all in good. And 2018, what a year, especially since a lot of these films were pretty good, but we had some no-hitters, we had some foul ones, but, you know, we're here for the top five films. You know, that's what we're yeah, exactly, exactly. So, folks, again, uh, if you're tuning in to WERA 96.7 FM right now, you're going to hear the top five films from Dean Rogers and myself of 2018. But please subscribe to the podcast. We've already knocked out uh, our top ten down to six. So we're going to go ahead and jump in uh, for our top five. My number five film. Now, this is a film that you really kind of have to be a film head if you saw it. Um, And it is burning. Now, this is a South Korean film from director Chang Dong Lee. Hope I got that right. And this uh, stars Steven Yin and Ah In Yu. And this is a film in which um, uh, as a young man, he meets a girl that used to live in the same neighborhood as him. She asks him to look after his cat while she goes on a trip to Africa. She comes back and introduces Ben, who's a mysterious guy that she met there. And he confesses he has this secret hobby. And so it's really interesting because it kind of starts out as a romantic kind of drama. And then eventually it starts to turn into a mystery uh, and a thriller, and uh, you know, you definitely—it's two and a half hours. You definitely have to be able to, you know, sit down and take the ride. Um, but I saw this at Kukaloris Film Festival, and it is definitely one that just stuck with me. The ride that uh, Chang Dong Lee takes you on is one that you will definitely remember. Um, and then on top of that, you know, I'm a huge fan of The Walking Dead, and so seeing Stephen Yin uh, on the screen again, um, but this time in he—he's like kind of the cool but mysterious. Uh, good-looking, handsome guy that you you can just tell he there's some evil behind him, and the way that he plays it is uh, so memorable. Um, it's definitely one in terms of foreign language films that is going to be up there, uh, hopefully uh, during award season. And at least the two critic bodies that I vote in, I've seen it, um, you know, get at least mentioned uh, on both of them. And so I definitely suggest if folks are able to find Burning and be able to see it, you should definitely check it out. It's my number five. It's definitely one that just stuck with me this year. Well, that's amazing. And I'm glad to hear Stephen Yoon has a great film. Because I actually got to meet him a few months ago at the, um, I think it's the 4th of July um, concert at the Capitol not too long ago. So I'm glad to see that he's got a powerful film. I have to put that on my list if I haven't seen that film. Before. Yeah, man, that- you you definitely should, man. And 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 it is again, the films that I'm I'm talking about are ones that like it really moved me in my spirit and my soul in some kind of way. And this is one where like, as I came out of the theater, you know, there were people behind me that were talking about it, you know, and, and Kukaloris is in Wilmington, North Carolina. And so, you know, you can walk a couple blocks to get back to, you know, kind of where you're staying or whatever. And people were talking about it the entire way, just trying to figure out, well, what was this? Or did do you think this was that? And I love movies that get you talking after the lights come up. And this is one of those films that will definitely do that. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Well, like every year I've been doing this, and it's almost 10 years since I've done this, the top five is always the toughest pick to do, you know. And number five is definitely not an exception, especially considering that it was a film for a lot of us, you know, African-Americans. We were waiting for this film, and it finally came. And, of course, we're talking about Black Panther. Black Panther. What can I say? Wakanda forever. And we all know that um, director Ryan Coogler, hot off um, Creed and several films, he took on the edition. And right now we're looking at a $1 billion worldwide box office here. So we got to get props to Black Panther. <laughs> yeah. Especially since he did a death balancing of high text by gadgetry, ceremonial polish, entry, Afrofuturism, fantasy, action, mayhem, and subversive political critique is unparalleled in the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe that Black Panther springs from. In the same way he did Creed, his propulsive and knowing reboot of the Rocky franchise, he paid tribute to and upended boxing iconography. There we go. Cougar's take on the superhero film is both pleasing and probing. Basically, he got the rhino battles, he took on imperialism, and the larger ideological conflict between Chatala, played by Chadwick Boseman, one of the best roles he has ever had, I have to say, and the revolutionary American Killmonger, played by Michael B. Jordan, who is from Kubler's previous work, Creed and Creed II, has been seen before in the pages of history book and comics, but has never been given this eye-popping, brain-scrambling, heart-pounding blockbuster treatment. I mean, for the most part, it's a sunny movie to witness embracing, as I said, the Afrofuturism with colorful, vibrant design. The film feels very much buried in its cultural roots, which I really appreciated, which gives some understanding to the film's significance. And Ludwig Gorson provides a wonderful, luscious, innovative score. And the rap numbers, courtesy of Kendrick Lamar, completes the action. The action sequences in the film was also riveting, especially with I Never Freeze from <laughs> The pace never lags in its relentless and sharp action sequences, whipping the audiences to their seats and at some point providing a strong emotional payoff. And the final act is certainly where the film is at its most wonderful, exciting. And, you know, it really, especially the line from Killmonger when he was slowly dying, it really hits you in the heart, especially, you know, from the struggles of African-Americans throughout American history. It really hits you when he says that line. It's like, you cannot believe he went there, but God bless him for going there. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Well, uh, that is definitely a good choice. It's You will hear about that later in my list. Um, <laughs> and and I think, you know, a lot of the things that you said is absolutely correct. I'm, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more. So uh, I'm going to go on to the number four. My number four, you already mentioned it, is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And I wanted to put this up in my top five because I think what Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse does for animation uh, is something that we are going to see the ripple effects of in the future. I feel as though uh, this film is actually taking, it's the best representation of taking 
the page of the comics and putting it up on the big screen. You know, I think about uh, what was the, the film, I think it was The Incredible Hulk um, that was early 2000, and they tried to kind of emulate that, but they really got it here. You can almost see some of the the, the brushstrokes, the, the illustration within each animation. On top of that, you know, the thought bubbles and the process and just the way that we're able to weave through New York City, uh, you know, with Spider-Man. And I just thought this was an amazing film, uh, one in which, you know, I have six-year-old and four-year-old. We actually were able to take them to see the film and they enjoyed it. There's, you know, the villain was a little bit scary. My son wanted to walk out <laughs> for a second. But however, it was a great time at the movies. Um, the storytelling was uh, excellent. And on top of that, I, one of the things I loved about the storytelling, you know, when you know uh, the origin story of Peter Parker, you know that he lost his uncle. And the way that they were able to um, show how each versions of the different Spider-Man, women, you know, pig, uh, how they lost someone. Uh, to me, it was really, it was really smart. And especially for uh, Miles Morales, who the film kind of focuses on, although this is also his training story. Um, I, I really enjoyed how they told his story and showed his loss. Uh, but ultimately, I think that this is just a great stellar animation and direction is what really wins in this. Um, but it was also awesome to see, you know, a young uh, black teen. Uh, of course, he's mixed race, you know, African-American uh, and uh, Latino. Um, however, you know, just seeing a, a black superhero on the big screen, uh, for the kids, again, uh, it was definitely a winner in my book. And so I had to put this up in my top five. I definitely think what it did for animation, uh, we're going to we're gonna be seeing down the road a, a, a lot. So that's my number four, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Well, that's a brilliant choice. I'm glad it made both our top ten films. So props to us for finding a film that made top ten. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. So, Dean, what's your number four? Number four, it was really tough to pick as my th five, four, three, two, one. But number four, it was one of the few movies that really made me cry at the end. And when I first heard about it, I didn't think it was going to be pulled off because it's been remade a few times in the 30s, the 50s, the 70s. And here we are, another version. It's like, you got to be kidding me. But A Star is Born 2008 made my number four. I mean, it is a story, as I said, been told many of times, but there's still a lot of great elements that make up for the newest rendition. I mean, Bradley Cooper, who this is his directorial debut, he has proven himself to be a fantastic actor over the years with such performances like Silver Linings Playbook, he did Limitless, and of course we can't forget him from the Hangover film and um, American Sniper, but he now demonstrates his skills both in front of and now behind the camera. And it might teeter on self-indulgence at times, but he wrings a lot of emotions out of our likable but fragile destructive hero, Jackson. But the film no doubt belongs to the wonderful, the talented Lady Gaga. <laughs> I mean, she, can, she may not belt out the tune like Chewy Garland or Barbara Streisand, but her chops are in a league of their own. And we heard it throughout her many albums, many singles. 
In fact, the songs are sung live, which add a lot of emotional weight to her scene. The film feels like it follows a tried and tested formula, but the discussions of the characters have and the decisions that they make feel so natural. And there's never a sense that anything is forced or out of place. The jealousy development between the leads are organic and they're beautifully shot and portrayed. And the final scene is enough to give you such good bumps. You want to leave the theater and you want to find Lady Gaga and you just want to give her a big hug for what she's gone through. She has all the hallmarks of a critical darling for sure, but I think the timeliness of the story, the quality of the musical numbers, and the astonishingly performances. Even Andrew Zykes Clay, who was in the film, oh my gosh, he made me cry. It is such a joy to watch. Whether you want to see the other versions or not, it is a great remake, and I'm very proud to have it as number four. All right, man. You know, now uh, I I can definitely respect uh you know a star is born being on your top 10 it did not make my list um and the only reason is because like it just didn't resonate with me and i don't know i didn't catch it when it first came out and so there was a lot of hype when it came out and a lot of people ran to the theater to check it out and for me personally it just didn't resonate the same way um as it did for so many other people i felt like lady gaga was trying not to be lady gaga like she was trying to be um you know an everyday person but i feel as though there's certain uh, people in this world that once they reach a certain uh, height in terms of fame and popularity that it's kind of hard to look at them you know as an around the way person so for instance j-lo she's got the uh, film if it hasn't already come out it's coming out in which again she's playing like the around the way girl but like she hasn't been jenny from the block for like quite some time now and so it's hard to kind of um see her as just an average person um i do think like you said like the performances the singing in in the film was just uh uh excellent um and i i will say like sam elliott he showed you how to get an oscar with one look as he reverses yeah. out of the driveway after talking to his brother jack uh bradley cooper um mm -hmm. that performance that rang true and heartfelt to me i didn't feel as moved by it as so many people and obviously you did but I can I can totally respect it, and I, I definitely understand how that is on your top ten and your number four. So I, I I feel you on that. I have to agree with you with Sam Elliott. I mean, he has a long standing career. He has earned Emmy and Golden Globe nominations, but never an Oscar. And I feel with a lot of performances he had over the years, I feel this is even for the shortest amount of time he was in the film. It is Oscar worthy, and I hope he does get some type of nomination for his film because to play against Bradley Cooper for what he's going through, it is very tough, and he really pulled it off, you know, with that stare, with that voice of his. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's per perfect for the role. So, uh, folks, you're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm being uh, entertained with my partner in crime, Dean on the scene, Dean Rogers of the Rogers Review. We are going down our top five films of 2018. Right now, we are at number three. 
And uh, I will go ahead and hit that off. Uh, my number three is from Barry Jenkins. It is If Beale Street Could Talk. This is uh, set in Harlem as uh, a, a woman who's pregnant while she and her family are struggling to prove that her fiance is innocent of a crime. Um, this, this film just spoke to me in, on so many different levels. Um, you know, uh, this is coming straight after Moonlight and I think Jenkins just has a way with the camera, with his yeah. characters, uh, Stefan James, who plays Fani, um, you know, he just did an excellent job in terms of portraying and embodying a black man that's just trying to make it in the world. And this uh, accusation is thrust upon him and how uh, quickly things turned. Uh, turn. Kiki Lane, who plays uh, uh, Tish in the film, um, she just does an excellent job. And so one of the things that, you know, guys, if you listen to the episode before, Tim Gordon and I were talking and Tim was talking about how he's kind of coined this wor word, the Jenkins effect and just how um, Barry Jenkins kind of puts unknown actors in the leading roles. And I think it's a smart move because rather than, uh, like like I was talking about with uh, A Star is Born, rather than us saying, oh, I'm watching Lady Gaga, you're like, ah, I don't know who that person is. So you're able to get into the story even more. Um, it's uh, He's heavily influenced by Wong Kar Wai. And so uh, the cinematography within If Beale Street Could Talk, the hues, the tones, um, it just really supplements this story. And so on one hand, you have a story of uh, a budding love, a love, a romantic relationship, hope in a future. And then quickly things change. And um, so, it, you know, hats have to be taken off and tipped to Regina King as she plays Sharon Rivers, uh, Tish's mom in this movie. Um, I definitely feel as though she will win. Uh, numerous awards this award season uh, for Best Supporting Actress, as she plays a mother that is like any other good mother who will go to the ends of the earth to make sure that, you know, their child is happy or safe, taken care of. And in this situation, they're trying to um, make sure that Fani is found innocent. And uh, so, so her performance is great. I mean, this is an awesome ensemble cast. Um, you know, taking a Baldwin novel and adapting it to the screen is definitely a difficult thing to do. But I feel as though, um, you know, Jenkins does a great job here. Uh, one of the things that you'll have to notice as you watch it, if you see this again, is the color palettes that he uses. Um, and yeah. so I believe, I think uh, Kiki, Kiki Lane, um, Tish, her character in the beginning, she's wearing like this yellow dress uh, as, you know, her and Fani are walking through the streets. And then when Fani is actually uh, put in jail, if you notice that same yellow is behind him on the wall. So there's so many different things that show you that this film is a lot deeper than you might think it is. Uh, but for me, ultimately, what I really appreciated and what resonated with me in this film is the fact that life can change so quickly. And especially for, you know, as an African-American male, we, we know in uh, our history, as well as in present day, there are times in which <laughs> your car could simply break down, you go knock on a door and you don't make it home, you know, and, and it's a sad state of affairs. But I think that this 
film beautifully encapsulates uh, the the loss of one's future in terms of how Fani, you know, he has such a bright future and you can see he's talented and he's he's an honest guy just trying to make it for him and his girl and all of that is just snatched away so quickly um, but the way that it's laid out the way that it's done I think is in such a way where people can walk away and say wow that was really wrong and analyze and hopefully that happens um, but that is my number three if Bill Street could talk from Barry Jenkins brilliant that's awesome. <laughs> brilliant i don't know how to follow that because i have to talk about it in my number three right now <laughs> <laughs> you can do it you can do it come on dean well top, number three here we go tough pick but it took a lot of soul searching and realization to pick out number three i mean it was very close i think my top three films were off by at least a point each because they were so good. Wow. But number three had to be for me first reformed. First reformed. Mm. It's a serious story of a pastor who's suffering a crisis of faith. And we got the brilliant writer and director, Paul Schrader, who's back into familiar territory. He is the, and for those who don't know, outside of the film critic circle, he is the screenwriter for 1976's Taxi Driver which was a violent, disturbingly portrait of a man consumed with guilt and rage and indignation at the state of the world. But this time, he makes an incendiary and powerful film that tackles all of his favorite themes and filters them through a career-best performance through Ethan Hawke. I mean, I remember Ethan Hawke when he was a very young boy doing his thing with Explorers in 85, and then Dead Poet Society with the late great Rob Williams and Reality Bites, and then for him to come up with this film, he delivers a fantastic performance where every word he writes in his diary contradicts what he's actually doing in real life. You can preach and give advice all day, but if you take that onto yourself, you'll be stuck in a garden without escape. And let's go over some another cast member, Amanda Seabreed, who is great as Mary, who is like Reverend Toller's own guardian angel of sorts. They need each other to get through this horrific time in each other's lives because Mary lost her husband, and Reverend Toller is one of the first persons to discover the body, and they have this connection and this chemistry that you can tell it was a wonderful chemistry on the film. And Reverend Toller, the guy, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, Ethan Hawke plays, he's a pastor of a small church in upstate New York, and he's ravaged over guilt from the death over his son, and he doubts his faith, alcoholism, and increasingly serious physical ailments. And to redeem himself, he's helping this young woman with a troubled husband, a path that leads him to an unexpected direction. And Hawke immerses himself completely in this tragic yet dignified character, while Schrader's elegant screenplay and uncluttered direction touches on themes of immense profounding and with an intimate way that it's hard to describe at times. I mean, this year is filled with films that are more thought-provoking and edgier than ever, where it's hard for people to speak of in this world, and it's movies like this 
that are doing the talking for you. Paul Schrader, the director, screenwriter, very legendary. He did a great job directing this film, and it leaves you with an unanswered ending that I am still to this day asking questions. What's going to happen with Reverend Toll? What's going to happen with Mary? This movie is... You have to watch it more than once and dissect all the lines and read all the Bible quotes lurking in the background of scenes to come to a conclusion of your own of what happened to all the characters involved. This is number three, and it's so immensely one of the best films I've seen this year that I need to see this again just to soak it in because, as I said, I'm still... Bother! I have questions after the fact. <laughs> you know, I think I, I I'm so glad this is on your top ten. It didn't make mine, but I, it definitely was a film in which, as you said, uh, still affected by it. And uh, I think it's a, a great choice to be on your list. I think, like you said, uh, Ethan Hawke's performance uh, is one that is just uh, very grounded. It's very tight. It's very personal. And, of course, uh, you know, kind of showing a flawed uh, reverend or pastor of a fledgling church. And, as you said, Amanda Seyfried, her her role in this film um, is definitely one in which, I mean, she's definitely showing her acting chops as well. I think one of the things that really resonated with me in this film as I was watching it, you know, in, in the beginning, Amanda Seyfried's uh, husband, I believe he returned from, was it war or he went behind uh, kind of to uncover like this thing that was going on, um, these the burnings of like tires and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But what he kind of comes back with is he has this concern about the world. And so, you know, his wife is now pregnant and he's really struggling with the idea of bringing a child into a world um, that is uh, going to basically bring destruction upon itself. Like, you know, and yeah. I thought that the the screenplay was an amazing way of talking about current day our relationship with Mother Earth and how we have really kind of destroyed it. And, you know, we're starting to see some of those effects. And whether people want to count it as fake news or not real, like, it's real. It is happening. And yeah. um, the, the, the debate that her husband has um, is one that I've had myself. Because I think as any parent, you think about, man, I'm bringing another life, another soul mm -hmm. forth onto this planet that did not ask to be here and wrestling with, is that the right thing to do? Was it fair to them? Is it fair to them when I know that I have at least, you know, as, as things go, a 30 year less life expectancy. So for the next 30 years past me, as the earth might come, you know, to a, to an end or whatever, like, Am, am I wrong for bringing them into that situation? And I think that that is one of the conversations that are had sometimes as parents within our head or, you know, with our spouse. Um, but it's not uh, put, I, I haven't really seen it kind of like that on the big screen. And so I think that that uh, kind of moral wrestling that happens within this film is definitely something that is real. It's, it feels grounded in truth. It's, it's one of those small, you know, kind of indie films that a lot of people might miss, but it's definitely one to check out. So Dean, I agree with you, man. Thanks for putting it on your top 10. Cause um, I'm just excited to be able to talk about it a little bit, but first reform was definitely uh, a great film that came out this year. Absolutely. 
And I guess I will go with my number two film that you've been taking the lead for a while. I'm going to take the lead for this one. Yeah, go ahead. Number two was your number three. It feels <laughs> good talk. I mean, from the moment I heard about this film, especially one of the brilliant works from James Baldwin, I fell in love with him. And to know that it was in Barry Jenkins' hand, it's like you could not ask for a better director to take on this brilliant piece. I feel that between Moonlight and this, this is Barry Jenkins' masterpiece. I mean, Jenkins turns his lens towards the legendary writer James Baldwin. It's a novel that Baldwin himself tried and failed to get Hollywood to produce in the 1970s, but here lives at last with an essayist vitality. I mean, Jenkins refigures Baldwin's prose into the interior monologue of Tish played by the wonderful ingenue Kiki Lane, a young woman who discovers she was pregnant after a lover and lifelong friend Bonnie played by the wonderful, talented Stephon James is wrongfully accused of rape by the police. Yet with a lyrical, lyrical effervescence, if Bill Street could talk, is not a disparaging film. Even when it could be a tragic one, rather it celebrates humanity and the ties that bind. B-Day in Tish's happy home, which is ruled by a wonderful, watchful matra, played by the brilliant Regina King. I have a feeling that she is going to win every award across the board. And we're talking the Oscar. We're talking the Golden Globe. We're talking Screen Next. I have a feeling she is going to win off her, especially she's <laughs> hot off her Emmy win from American Crime, which just unfortunately got canceled, but she won the Emmy. It's brilliant. And by God, when I interviewed her earlier this year, that woman does not age at all. She looks like she's still 16 in 227. It's like... <laughs> It's mind-blowing. Yeah. But I'm going to the uh, review. Or in the connection between young people who are not defined by the broken rules of society, it holds close those with the ability to see into each other's souls, just as Jenkins' film so acutely does one mesmeric close-up one at a time. I mean, he has his own unique visual style, Jenkins, and yet he is also in danger of painting himself into a niche corner, but you don't see it in this film. You really do not see it. And with Stefan Shane's raw performance, refused with repressed anger every time we see him suffering in the jail for a crime he did not commit. You can see that intensity increasing every time with every visit. It really brings tears to my eyes every time I'm thinking about this film because you have such power performances from Regina King to Coleman, um, Domingo, thanks his name, Brian Tyree. Another, this is the second film he was in. It's like he was powerful in Widows. He was just as powerful as Bonnie's friend in this film. Wonderful performances all around. And this is a must-see I mean, this is, I have to admit, this has been a year for African-American films overall. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. I mean, Black Panther with this film, so many films. It's like this is the year where African-Americans have a very powerful voice, and it will never be ignored for years to come. And I hope that momentum will continue. In fact, one of these days, um, 
Kevin, I'll have to share with you the um, interviews I had with both of them because when I interviewed both Barry and Kiki and Regina and Stefan, they really in, they were really in-depth with this film. And I'm so glad that the cast, director, the screenwriting, the cinematography, the film is nothing short of perfection to what a film should be. And I'm glad this was my number two film. I really give props. And I have a feeling whatever Barry Jenkins produced for his next film, it's going to be just as brilliant as Moonlight and Talk. That's all I got to say about it. Oh, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and don't forget Medicine for Melancholy. I mean, uh, Jenkins to me has proven, you know, for me, I need three solid films. And he's given that uh, just like Kugler has. Uh, You know, again, folks, if you check the episode before, I talked with Tim Gordon. We talked about our top five uh, black films of 2018 because, Dean, you're absolutely correct. In terms of black cinema, uh, we had a stellar year. And, I mean, these are films that are are, are just incredible. On top of that, we had four uh, African-American directors who grossed over $100 million on each of their films. Um, So it it was a spectacular uh, year for black cinema. And one of the things that you said, uh, there's a couple of things that you said in terms of uh, Beale Street, and I thought you're absolutely correct. The way that Jenkins' uh, camera, he he gives that close-up, it's almost as though the camera is looking Mm -hmm. into the soul of the characters. And I think you're absolutely correct on that. And like you said, the repressed anger uh, that Fani is able to uh, exude, um, it's it's one of those that really resonates. You know, just thinking about Baldwin and one of his quotes of, to be Negro and relatively conscious in America is to be angry all the time. And I think the, the rest of the quote goes something, something like, so the first step is to figure out how to deal with that anger. And that really resonates with me, especially as I've gotten older, um, now that I've kind of seen a lot of the injustice in the world. And for me, uh, you know, that part really resonates. But I think that ultimately it's about, well, what do you do with um, the anger that you you feel brewing underneath? Uh, We'll turn it into some kind of a positive outlet. That's why I started the DC Black Film Festival, um, just to be able to put our images up on the big screen and not to, to digress too much, but just the things that Beale Street is able to accomplish cinematically are all the things that I appreciate about cinema because we're able to look at ourselves. You know, movies are a mirror to our world. We're able to look at it and then hopefully we we walk away and we're able to, um, you know, talk about it and see how we can be better. So great choice. Uh, I'm going to go to my number two, which is uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. I saw this one, yes, saw this one in Middleburg, and I have to say, you know, this is definitely not for the faint of heart. Again, this is one of those kind of art house films, you know, it's on Netflix right now, um, but it's one in which you have to sit down and and take the ride. And so the story chronicles a year in the life of a middle class family uh, made in Mexico in the early 1970s. And so what you uh, what you see is just the genius of Curon. Uh, this guy is an amazing director. Uh, so let's start there. <laughs> His camera <laughs> angles, um, he doesn't just give you glitz and glam. So this film is shot in black and white. The cinematography is amazing for black and white. 
everything pops. It is so crystal clear. Uh, but the way that Caron puts his camera and frames things in the scene, nothing is framed just for the fun of it. Everything is framed for a reason. And you can tell that uh, as the film goes on. I mean, it starts out with this incredible shot of just the water and you're looking at the reflection of the sky and you know it feels really old school and it kind of lulls you in and it kind of really kind of gets you set up for the ride that you're about to take um, and then even he recalls that same kind of image later on in the film uh, but again this character story that he tells about this maid their life uh, and then the the family that she's serving and how they eventually come together is just one of beauty. Uh, and so to not waste too much time on Roma, mm -hmm. there's a final scene in, on, on the beach. And again, here is where I'm telling you, it's like everything. If you want to if you want to know all about Roma, all you need to know is this final beach scene. Spoiler alert, the family is at the beach and they are, you know, f having fun swimming. Um, the maid who is played by Yalitza Aparicio, um, yep. her name is Cleo. Uh, she, is, she doesn't know how to swim, uh, but the daughter goes out into the water and you can tell she has trouble. And so there is this long one take in which as Cleo is running to uh, the water, she's pushing the frame and you hear the noise, you can hear the screaming, but Caron doesn't allow us to just jump cut over to, or, you know, he doesn't just edit it where we're boom, we're right over wherever it's happening. No, we have to take this long walk with her. We can't see anything outside of the frame other than her. She gets there. And I honestly feel as though they had to have had um, some scuba divers underwater to give that child something, some, some oxygen because she's down. Like you can't find her. You can't see her. And this is all being done in one take. So, oh my goodness, your heart is out of your chest. She yeah. finally gets the daughter, takes her to the beach and uh, it's on the movie poster. You see Cleo becomes the center image as the whole family kind of just wraps their arms around her. And honestly, that is the arc of the film. By, that, by the time you get there, uh, you have seen how, if you go back and watch it, Caron first frames her outside of the family. She's usually not in the same frame with the family. Then eventually she becomes, she, she's in the frame, but she's, on the outside all the way till we get to the beach and now she is in the center of the family which kind of cements the whole theme of the film which is that there are families that you're born into and there's the families that you choose and so it all culminates on that beach in the beach sequence and so again Caron is uh, a genius. He's an excellent filmmaker. He's proven that with the films that he has had in the past. Um, there are so many different just nerd out shots that I could talk about. There's one that I think about. There's an earthquake. And I'm not even going to say it because, like, the filmmaker in me wants to uh, do it again. <laughs> but I I'll go ahead and put it on, on wax right now. Um, she's looking into, like, the Nick U, and there's, like, baby, you know, the babies that are in there. And yeah. rather than showing the horror, 
Kron is able to show us in the reflection as uh, a ceiling towel falls down on one of uh, like the baby, uh, I guess, kind of cribs or whatever. But we don't directly see the horror, but you can feel it by catching a glimpse of it in the, the window. And I just think it's so brilliant. So, yes, the film nerd and me is geeking out right now. Roma <laughs> is definitely one that you gotta, I mean, it's gotta be daytime. You gotta have, you must have had your coffee. Don't watch it at 10 p.m. at night because you're not gonna, you're not gonna finish it. Uh, nope. But it's definitely one that you must see. So, Roma is my number two uh, in terms of 2018 films. Excellent. Well, I might as well tell you my number one film. You might and as well. You might as well. I'm piggyback on you. Number one for me, and I've said the top five films were off by a point because they were very tough. Roma was my number one Nice. Film. Nice. I mean, what else can we say about it? It is the most exquisitely shot, breathlessly cinematic project of the year, and it's available on Netflix, so you don't have to go out to a theater to see it. You can actually... Go on Netflix and see this film, and especially since this is Caron's most personal film, which is marked by the fact that he was the cinematographer, and the photography is just brilliantly stunning, stunning, beautiful, wonderful. The film takes over two hours to bring audience to tears, myself included, but for those who surrender to its hypnotic thrall, it is most definitely well. Finally, the unseen has been made visible with this celluloid monument that is irresistible as the rolling surf, as we've seen in the film. Because we see an absent father that sometimes, and a sometimes struggling mother with four willful children. Though, through it all, Cleo maintains dignity and calm whilst trying to find the joy in her life. It's slow moving, but each frame is so lovingly curated, it's never remotely a chore to watch. This is aided by the decision to shoot in magnif magnificent black and white. On its own, this film is worth the cinematography alone, as I said, mentioned moments ago. There are countless scenes that are designed to take your breath away, but there is so much more to offer. There is a backdrop of civilian unrest and protest. There are dates at cinemas, the glorious parties, the magical happenings. It's ordering life imbued with the possibility of more. It's the normality exploding into the extraordinary. It's the bonds of family life and most of all, the dignity of all life. The second half of the film delivers a uniquely devastating scene that packs a huge emotional punch. In fact, when I heard about with the scene with the baby, when uh, Cleo lost her baby, basically Karras did not explain what was going to happen in that scene. So you felt the emotions, they were real, they were raw. That, oh my gosh, you were speechless by the end of what happened with that scene. By the time it was over, I was stunned in silence. <laughs> I mean, with Gravity and the Harry Potter film that he directed, this is his, his magnus opus, to say the least. He has certainly 
create a film that will last for ages and people like you and I are going to be talking about for the rest of our lives. And I have to give props to Young Nitsa Aparicio. This is her very first film. This is her very first film. She never had acting before. She was a school teacher, but she could relate to the film because when I interviewed her at Middleburg, her mother was a Cleo. So she can totally relate to the film and she draws on those experiences to do this film justice. Her acting was brilliant. It was like you were following her. You knew Cleo for the two and a half hours there. You knew her whole story. Yeah. Oh my God. I I, I I couldn't agree with you more. You know, the only thing I'm going to disagree with you on, or you didn't actually say this, is you in the beginning you said it's on Netflix. You don't have to go out to the theater. But I will say I think you should. This is one of the films that when uh, you know all the Oscar nominated films hit the theaters and you can go to like your AMC to be able to watch all of them for like either the marathon or pick and choose. This is one that you want to see on the big screen. It does not deserve the small screen treatment, but I think it's a smart move on Netflix, but it's a brilliant film that you need to see on the big screen because if you don't, you're going to miss some of those things that we were talking about just in terms of, uh, you know, uh, each frame and how lovingly uh, Curon actually curated it, like Dean said. I mean, it's just uh, an amazing film that deserves the big theater treatment. So that was the only little part that I would say, um, because I definitely think that uh, it is... Man, it's just uh, a really moving film, and and like you said, the scene in in which I guess spoiler alert, we you know she's uh, dealing with the loss of her baby. It is so grounded in humanity and uh, a universal struggle, and you know the the feeling of loss that you you have to be moved by it. and and again here's another director who took someone that in my interview with her uh you know she had said that she didn't even know who alfonso Cuaron was yeah. uh she, she she but when she found out who he was you know she was honored and all that kind of stuff but I mean, he really took a non-actress, and and that's what makes it feel so real. It almost feels like a documentary, um, you know, that she really embodied this character. So, yeah, I, I totally feel you uh, on putting it in at your number one. I have to agree with you, Kevin. You're right. If you just see it on Netflix, you're right. It would take away the emotional experience of what's going into a theater being with people who are like you, cinephiles, moviegoers, and feeling that emotion at the same time. No, yeah, going to the theater delivers that experience for all of us, not just for the ones who see films every single week, but for the <laughs> average goer. You want to feel that emotion, and you are right. I have to, I have to, my have you. You're right. I'm glad you disagreed with me at that moment. You're right because you got to see this film. Just one of those movies you can't just go to Netflix or can't just get a DVD or can't just get a Blu-ray to buy it. You have to see this in a theater to experience the raw emotion Roma delivers. Yeah, most definitely. All right. Well, Dean, this brings me to my number one, which uh, has to be Black Panther. 
<laughs> for me personally, this film, it, I mean, this is a personal thing. Like, it, you know, it it's, might not be number one on other people's thing. Obviously, it was in your top ten. Uh, but this film just... I'll put it to you this way. When, uh, you know, I'm living in Charlotte, North Carolina, I'm still on the press list for DC. And for the most part, I have, thank goodness, uh, some great writers that are able to go and, you know, do the reviews for me and things like that. But for Black Panther, I rented a car, drove up to DC just so that I could see the film and do the interviews with Ruthie Carter. Uh, I mean, this film um that's such dedication by the way that's such dedication that, that, <laughs> exactly it, it it was it was but i just felt like there was something about you know just as a black male that um this film as i've said before you know uh it just moved me to tears in that first act the first time i saw it one i think about all the years that you know while while i was a young kid like i've, I've always seen white males uh, as superheroes um on the big screen superman whoever and this was the first time that you know we had meteor man which we have to give robert townsend credit for because he yep. gave us something and uh, that was huge for me as a kid um, but here in Black Panther, I feel like this is one of the best. Now, we did have Blade as well. Excuse me. I want to make sure I, I you know, give proper respect. Um, but this film was one in which the main character, T'Challa, played by Chadwick Boseman, is a king. He's one of the richest uh, people in the MCU. Um, you know, Wakanda represents uh, high in in intellect. Uh, and... You know, the community that was built, um, the set design, the production, uh, you know, we talked with Ruthie Carter about, uh, you know, the costume design and how she went to Africa. Um, all of the, you, you know, if you talk to her for every single group of people, whether it's the Dora Milaje or um, for, you know, T'Challa himself, like there is something in terms of the way that she created the costume and her team did that, that, that it actually comes from African design and African inspiration. And uh, so for me, I have this whole piece of just feeling as though I finally see myself on the big screen represented well. Um, but then on top of that, a director like Ryan Coogler, who is one of my favorite uh, directors slash, you know, black, black directors, but I'm going to say directors uh, working today, um, he just delivered uh, what I felt was, uh, you know, just a masterpiece coming off of Creed and now going to Black Panther, showing that he is able to handle a variety of genres. You talked about Jenkins and how he's kind of creating a niche for himself. Cooler is mm -hmm. able to show that he can, you know, he's just well-rounded. Give him anything, he can make it hot. And uh, that's what we got with Black Panther. Um, you know, the storyline, again, going to as African-American people, a lot of our history has been lost, uh, you know, from coming to the States with slavery. And so one of the themes throughout the film is tell them who you are, who are you, They the questioning who are you, and people having to know who they are. Now, whether you're able to go far back in your genealogy or you just know who you are and who you were born from, knowing who you are and having pride in yourself 
uh, is something that I feel this film really emoted and that really resonated with me as again I say like in the first act the first time I saw it I definitely was in tears because of the beauty of it but then you take you know all that aside right so the the mm -hmm. The 35 years of being an African-American male, take that to the side. The story was awesome. The story was great. Um, we had two uh, different differing personalities, you know, with Eric Killmonger and King T'Challa. Um, one wants to be peaceful. One wants by any means necessary, a little Martin and, Mal and Malcolm. Uh, but... With Killmonger, Michael B. Jordan presents a villain that you can really actually relate to. You can you can understand you know his motives, and uh, you root for him in in many ways. Uh, yeah. And then at the same time with Chala, you understand you root for him. And then let's talk about Letitia Wright. I mean, she was hilarious. Um, yeah. You know, and there was the article that talks about how um, uh, you know black. I think it was I can't. The exact quote, but it was like Black Panther uh, is great, but uh, Suri will save the world. And just talking about how, as a young African American uh, a woman on the screen, or not, she's not African American. She's uh, British, I believe. But um, yeah. you know, just a black person on the screen, a young black girl um, in engineering, uh, how that will really set up the black girls that are watching her to want to go into that field and really kind of change up the the world. Um, so, I mean, there's so many just great. <laughs> there's so many great things that can come. through from the film, as well as so many great performances. I, I always have to give my hats off to Denai Guerrero as Okoye. I mean, she played strength and humor at the same time, and that spilled into Avengers Infinity War, which I just recently watched on Netflix uh, recently. Um, and <laughs> even in that, she she's like, when Scarlet Witch like finally comes out, she was like, and she was upstairs the whole time? Like, <laughs> it was, it's, she just did a, a brilliant job. And so for my number one, in terms of 2018, Black Panther is definitely up there. It's one that I saw in the theaters three times, seen it a oh, whole yeah. bunch of times since then, got the Blu-ray, um, mm -hmm. you know, you can watch it on Netflix right now. Uh, and I think that, uh, again, we got to give hats off to the MCU because this is something that we've never seen before where this world building is now kind of coming together for Infinity War and uh, yeah. we're about to get Captain Marvel. Um, but by the time in uh, Infinity War we get to Wakanda, you know, there there's so much that uh, love that we have for Wakanda uh, that when we see this, you know, fight kind of take place on uh, Wakandan grounds, you know, it, it's personal to us. And I think, I think that's the beauty of cinema, man. It, these are just stories, but you're able to find yourself within them and really be moved by them. And so Black Panther definitely did it for me. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens uh, with Infinity War Part Two. Uh, what is it? Endgame. Um, it, it's uh, it's, it's going to be dope. So my number one, Black Panther. I have to agree with you, and I'm glad that Black Panther is so making money and giving African-American boys and girls such a hero to look up to. And the best part is at the end of the film, how Black Panther and 
the sister was paying it forward to giving the community a voice. I'm glad that it showed in real life because I remember reading in February of earlier this year that Disney is donating $1 million to the Boys and Girls Club STEM programs, and two of those communities is in Los Angeles in the Compton and the Watts area. I, I believe it's Compton. Let me double-check. Um I remember reading, yeah, it's Watts in Oakland. So it's amazing that they were able to pay it forward in the film and pay it forward in real life. And you've got to, God bless Ryan Coogler and the entire cast. It was black girl magic, black boy magic, every step of the way. And what can we say? We're going to be talking about Black Panther for the rest of our lives here. Last sister. The trailer came out, the movie came out, the Blu-ray came out. Pretty much the, 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 the ceiling has been shattered. Black people love movies, and black people really showed up in droves for this film. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, man, I love it. You <laughs> you say we're going to be talking about this for the rest of our lives. You, you believe that on a, a few of these films from this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I say 2018 was a great year. I don't think 2019 will have that stamina as much as 2018. I hate to say this, but yes, I mean, these films were powerful. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I definitely believe you're correct. And, you know, it's kind of funny as we look at the landscape of film and movies and, you know, we have Netflix, we have Hulu, we got Amazon Prime, we got so many streaming channels. Um, <clears throat> I, I feel as though stories need to... <laughs> I hate to say it, but be great again. And I think that that's kind of what we've seen in 2018 because there are so many different stories. There's so much media and entertainment that you can choose from. You don't have to go out to the theater anymore. So I think that one of the things that some of these studios are starting to realize is that, you know, if you're going to put a story out there, it needs to be good. It needs to be moving. Um, and we definitely got that with uh, many of these films this year. I think we're going back to a more indie style film, which, you know, I love always celebrating the indie filmmaker. Um, mm -hmm. But I definitely think it's more getting back to the smaller character studies um, of the past, because I think, you know, way back in the day, you know, with even the, you know, big Hollywood system. They only had so much money to put into a film each year, so they had to tell some great stories. And then somewhere along the way, you know, about the 70s, you know, we start to see, you know, a plethora of different types of stories. And um, I, I think it got watered down over time. But here we're starting to see this resurgence of just great storytelling, great films. I think um, we're able to see uh, or hear from more diverse storytellers. So even though, like, I think Black Cinema had a great year, you know, Crazy Rich Asians was yeah. a, a great film um, that Absolutely. people shouldn't sleep on. It didn't make my top 10, but it was definitely a film worth mentioning. And again, here, an all-Asian cast, um, and it, it did really well in the box office, um, but I definitely think that's another one that folks should see, and it's one that you know folks should definitely talk about in terms of a great ensemble, uh, universal mm -hmm. message, um, and you know it just happened to be an all Asian cast, which I I definitely love seeing. So yeah, we saw some great films in 2018. Right, and the best part about um, some of these 2018 films. It really broke the stereotypes that most people were seeing on television and films, let's say, the past 50 years. Because 
I think it's been a long while since we've seen these stereotypes never existing, never thought in our lifetime that was ever going to happen. And then crazy rich Asians come along. Black Panther came along. They really broke the stereotypes. It's like, I am glad as not only a film critic, as an entertainment reporter, but as a human being that I get to finally see very positive images of a person who is me who can be me and is me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep, no no doubt, man. Um, I think that that is what is so exciting. And now, uh, obviously, you know, for unfortunately for a portion of Hollywood, you know, it's the money that talks. And as, as I said earlier, you know, we were able to see four films that grossed over $100 million helmed by a black director. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Crazy Rich Asians did really well. And so I think people are starting to really see that, you know, we can still tell universal stories and you can see yourself in someone who does not necessarily look like you. And I think that's the beauty of uh, cinema. Uh, And also, I think that's, you know, just the beauty of, you know, the world and where it's headed, you know, like with my son, I've said it before, you know, seeing him actually do, you know, be Captain America one year for Halloween, Iron Man, and then, you know, Black Panther this year. um, That's amazing. Yeah, now, what's even more amazing to me is seeing all the white kids be Black Panther, you know, uh, <laughs> for Halloween this year. I'm, I'm being it's funny, but I'm being serious. Like, that's awesome. Um, and so being able to say, hey, Black Panther was su- super dope and I want to be him for Halloween. And yeah, I don't look like him. But, you know, I, he, having that same kind of uh, love for a character as, you know, we've had for, you know, some of the white characters being Superman or whatever the case may be. Um, and so at the end of the day, I think, uh, Dean, one of the reasons that we really love film is because of the stories that are told and the way that we are able to understand life through the lens of whatever whoever storyteller uh, is telling that story. And as you said, in 2018, we got a lot of great films. So there's a lot, a, a lot for folks to catch up on. Uh, Dean, if you could, how can people follow your work uh, and maybe even check out your top 10 list on your site? Well, they can follow me at the Rogers review review spelled R E V U E.com. And we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube. I'm with Kevin most of the time, but don't tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> But especially this is a groundbreaking year for um, the Rogers review because January 16th, we would be 10 years doing this. So this is our 10th anniversary, and I still cannot believe it. I'll shout out to the team who has been with us, who has left us over the years. They have been the heart and soul. Even though they say, Dean, you are the man, I said, I may be the man, I'm the, my name may be part of the title, but it is the damn good, talented producers, my writers, my photographers, my videographers, my editors, my reviewers. They are the backbone of the team. And if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for their time, their energy, their dedication, 
we would not have gone 10 years of delivering the news, reviews, and interviews of the entertainment capital. So I give thanks to them. I give thanks to the fellow critics who supported me, like you, Kevin. And I give thanks to the readers who have supported us throughout these 10 years. And we're looking forward to 2019 and giving you bigger and better and brilliant content. So I really thank you all. Awesome. All right. So again, make sure you check out Dean at the Rogers Review. Uh, Dean, thanks so much for coming on, man. It's it's been a blast. I, I definitely enjoy anytime we get to do uh, our our top lists. I, I think we've done this in the past, but actually in the studio at AIM before. Yeah. So uh, yeah, thanks again, man, for coming on. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to 2019 where we review some more reviews and seeing you in 2019, of course. Most definitely. And probably by the time this airs, it's 2019. But, you know, the magic, folks. (laughs) Picture Lock question of the week last week. What's your most anticipated film of 2019? On Instagram, at Elements of Madness said, Strangely, I don't have a top film for 2019 I'm looking out for. There's the big ones. Shazam, Captain Marvel, Avengers, Men in Black, and Star Wars. Sure. But Piercing, Braid, Happy Death Day to You, and The Kid Who Would Be King are just a few of the other films that could be great fun in 2019. Got lots of likes, uh, but no other comments on social. Thanks for weighing in on last week's question, Elements of Madness. Picture lot question of the week this week. Which anniversary film should we celebrate at this year's DC Black Film Festival? The Best Man, Crooklyn, Do the Right Thing, Surviving the Game, Glory, The Hurricane, or Above the Rim. There are some really good films in that list, and I've already posted this on social media. You guys have been weighing in. Uh, We really appreciate that. But for those of you maybe listening to the podcast or radio right now, call 202-350-1351 and leave a 60-second or less voicemail or leave a comment via Picture Lock social media, and I'll play or read it on next week's show. Voicemails would be good because these are classic anniversary films, so I would love to hear why you think whichever film you pick should be celebrated at this year's DCBFF. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guest, Dean Rogers, for coming on the show. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast, so you can catch those unlocked versions of the show as well as the Picture Lock PR after show. If you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock podcast, and I'll come right up. Feel free to leave a five-star review of the show as well. You're supporting the filmmakers and guests I have on the show by allowing more people to be exposed to the podcast. It's quick, easy, and free. I really appreciate it. And as I've said before, I'll be your best friend. (laughs) You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash Picture Lock Show and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website, picturelockshow.com. All music is done by Mike S, the producer 13. Make sure you follow him on all things social media at Mike S, the producer, numeral one, numeral three, and hit him up for your music production needs. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film.